Well, they say you should be careful for what you <coughs> wish for, because your wish just might come true. In June this year, it was reported that a man in Iowa, named Christopher Voschel, held up and robbed a petrol station and took $200 from the cashier. Christopher drove off, planning to spend what he had stolen in a, in a bar. However, he was followed by another man who, in turn, robbed him as soon as he parked his car. Well, the first man, Mr. Christopher Voschel, called the police to report the theft. But unfortunately for him, the police realised that he was the one who just robbed the petrol station. And so he was promptly arrested for aggravated theft and violation of the terms of his probation order. So be careful what you wish for, especially when what you wish for is justice. Because you might just end up getting justice. And it might be you who ends up in the dock. Our passage tonight in Malachi 2 and 3 follows that pattern. People think they want justice. God promises them justice, but warns them that they might end up regretting their arrogant assumptions about what that justice will mean for them. Well, as we've been going through the book of Malachi, we've seen how at this particular point in history, the 5th century BC, God's people, for the most part, were pretty much... Uh, set in a pattern of committing sin after sin, and they had no regard for the God who had graciously given them everything they had. I say for the most part, there was a faithful remnant uh, who we'll come on to in a a future week. But the majority of the book takes the form of this this dialogue between God and his people. A bit of housekeeping at this point, I should say, technically this is the southern kingdom of Judah, the northern kingdom haven't been, having been destroyed by this point, but Malachi does use the term Israel as well to refer to them, so a bit confusing, and you'll forgive me if I switch between using Judah and Israel as I go through. So, but, but there's this dialogue going on between God's people and the Lord, spoken through the prophet Malachi. But I say it's a dialogue. God actually speaks the people's lines for them on their behalf, um, which in a way perhaps indicates how blind they've become to their own sin, that God has to point it out to them. So specifically, we've seen already how in chapter one, God's people were content to sacrifice the worst animals on the altar, those that were crippled, blind, diseased, not the perfect animals that God had commanded them to give. And in chapter one, verse 13, we read that the people saw the law of the Lord as a burden. In chapter 2, God, through Malachi, turns to the priests, the supposed spiritual leaders of the people. And they too have rebelled against God. They've been teaching falsehood. They've been showing partiality. Um, Perhaps it was favouring the wealthy and influential in society whilst neglecting the poor. And finally, in the second half of chapter 2, God has exposed the hypocrisy of the people who are more than willing uh, to to make great shows of mourning over their unanswered prayers but they were unwilling to acknowledge their spiritual and physical adultery. So it's not hard to see why we've entitled this series The Danger of Dead Religion. And so we come to chapter 2, verse 17. Here we read that Judah has wearied the Lord with their words. How? By saying, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he is pleased with them. Or where is the God of justice? So the people are demanding that justice be done. 
And this basic idea of justice and injustice is very familiar to us, isn't it? It's often said that one of the phrases that a child learns very early on in life is, it's not fair. And if we're honest, even as adults, we spend quite a bit of our time protesting, inwardly or outwardly, that life just isn't dealing us a fair hand. I deserve that promotion. I'm so much better at my job than they are. How can they can afford that car, that house, that holiday? And, and we can't. We work much harder than they do. Even as Christians, we have a, a tendency to do the same thing, but spiritualize it a little bit. Why has God allowed me to go through this suffering when my non-Christian neighbor sails through life without a care in the world? Now, of course, this isn't the only place in the Bible which tackles those sorts of feelings. In Psalm 73, Asaph expresses something somewhat similar when he says, I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. But let's be clear, there's a significant difference, I think, between what Asaph expresses in Psalm 73 and what's going on here with Israel in Malachi 2, verse 17. And that difference is this. Whereas Asaph begins and ends that psalm by acknowledging the goodness and sovereignty of the Lord, the people of Israel and Malachi are completely brazen in their contempt for the Lord. They're more than willing to put God in the dock. It's not a moment of weakness or of doubt. It seems to be a settled, high-handed, arrogant accusation levelled at God. So our passage starts with this description of the people's attitude towards God, and it ends with the diagnosis at the heart of the problem. Just look with me at chapter 3 and verse 5. The Lord says, So I will come to put you on trial. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers and perjurers, against those who defraud labourers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless, and deprive the foreigners among you of justice. But do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. And it's that little phrase at the end that's the sting in the tail. But do not fear me. It's a total lack of fear of the Lord that's the root of, of Israel's sin, although that sin is expressed in lots of different ways. Whereas in Psalm 73, Asaph teaches us that it's possible to go through a serious experience of, of questioning what God is doing in the world and yet stay on the right side of faithfulness, to ultimately trust that God is good and that he'll bring about justice in the end, here we see that unlike Asaph, the people of Israel are blind to their own sinfulness. It's an outright rejection of the goodness of God and of his justice. And isn't this something we see very often around us in the world today? People who are living and working here in, in Oxford are more than willing to put God in the dock. They, like the people in Malachi's day, are, are saying things like, God's got it wrong. His sense of morality is perverse. <coughs> How can he insist there's only one way to him and that all other paths lead to hell? How dare he declare that the way I express my sexuality is sinful? How can he allow such suffering to go on in the world and still expect us to worship him? Well, if that's what God is like, I refuse to believe in him. Can I just pause and say that if any of those are things that you struggle with, that I encourage you to keep exploring more about what God has said about those issues and why. And we're really glad that you're here and we'd love to talk more uh, to you about these things. 
There are no easy answers to those questions, but there are good answers to those questions. But there's also another popular idea in our culture today which I think mirrors the same arrogance and rebellion against God that Malachi's countrymen were also expressing. And it may sound a little bit more pious, but often it's the same attitude underneath. And that's what I would call the only God can judge me attitude. I wonder if you've heard anyone say that recently, either in the media or in your own life. And for cultural observations like this, I think Twitter provides a fascinating insight into the world we live in. I did a quick search for hashtag only God can judge me and found the following tweets. Eating a baked potato for breakfast, hashtag only God can judge me. Wearing the same clothes I wore yesterday because I don't want to pay for laundry, hashtag only God can judge me. Just bought my first 5p bag, hashtag only God can judge me, and so on. You know, there are many more in a similar vein. Now, of course, those people are just probably trying to be funny, and you know, on one level it is, it is amusing because they're all such trivial things. But sadly, for a lot of people, the decision to either obey or disobey God, to either follow Jesus or not, isn't something they take much more seriously than whether or not to buy a 5p bag. So here's why I say that the only God can judge me attitude is also pretty arrogant and in many ways at heart a similar sentiment to that which the people in Malachi's day were expressing. It sounds like it's giving honour to God by acknowledging his authority as the ultimate arbiter of justice. But actually, do we really want to put ourselves in the dock and God in the seat of judgment? Or is it that we've lost sight of who God is and of his holiness? Is it that to many people the idea of a God who judges is, is just far-fetched and they'd rather take their chances with him than actually worry about what their, their fellow human beings think about, think about them? But it's precisely God's judgment that we should genuinely be concerned about. In the grand scheme of things, it actually doesn't matter what my friend or colleague or, or boss or neighbour or parents think about me. And to that extent, the phrase, only God can judge me, does contain an element of truth. But it's a sad fact that often the person that holds that attitude may not have considered what God thinks about their life. They may never have read what God has to say about justice, and they may never have considered that there really might be a God whose judgment is coming upon all those who have not sought refuge in Jesus. So I hope you can see that this matter of God's justice being questioned or downplayed, his commands being disregarded, is not just something that people of Malachi's day were guilty of. It's extremely relevant to today, and maybe you can think of examples, other examples, of ways in which our culture uh, makes, the, makes light of God's judgment in the same way. Because our culture around us today is very blasé about the notion of God's justice. And what that ultimately reveals is a lack of fear of God, which is also where our passage ends up in verse 5. But maybe you're here tonight and you, know, you are a Christian, you love God, you want to do his will, you want his priorities to be your priorities. Well, I find it very easy sometimes to nod along in agreement to these sorts of passages, talking about God's holiness and justice, and think, yes, that is, that is right. But can I ask, what difference are those truths making to our lives? Are we grappling with what these things mean in practice? One of the ways we can start to engage with these issues is to make sure that we're in a position to give some kind of an answer to some of those 
questions that I mentioned earlier, the hot potatoes in our culture today. Whether it's issues such as sexuality, the exclusivity of the gospel, the uniqueness of Christ, or God's judgment. How could you respond to people you know who are blasé about the notion of God's justice? If you're feeling a bit of a loss to know where to start, help is at hand. Daniel Blanche tackled the question of the Bible's view of sexuality a few weeks ago at one of these evening services, and the audio's uh, still on the Warden Road website. There are also loads of great books out there which deal with some of these uh, objections to Christianity in a very accessible way, so make sure you're reading those and absorbing what it has to say if you don't feel like you're in a position to give an answer at the moment to some of those questions. So it is a sad fact that more and more people today are willing to openly confront God and put him in the dock. Maybe in the fairly recent past, people wouldn't have spoken out about such things. They just would have kept quiet. But now they are. But the positive for us is that it does present us with an opportunity to engage with people, to speak to them and to respond in grace and truth. At the same time though, Malachi 2 verse 17 is a serious warning for the church to hear, as well as those who aren't followers of Jesus. After all, Malachi was not written to pagan nations, but to God's people. It was they who had hardened their hearts to the point where they were willing to make these incredible accusations at God. They hadn't completely abandoned the pretense of religion. If they were living today, they would still be in church every Sunday. But they were doing so in a way which was empty, dead, devoid of any spiritual reality. So there's no room for complacency for us today. If you do find yourself questioning what God is doing, where his justice is in a given situation in the world or in your life, read Psalm 73. Remind yourself of what God has revealed about himself in the Bible. As we'll see in a few moments, God ultimately brings about perfect justice through Jesus. And that's a cause to fear him, but it's also a cause to worship him. Look at the life, death and resurrection of Jesus and see what God has done for you. So don't let your heart be hardened. Well, much of what we've covered so far has really just been unpacking verse 17. But what happens next? I began tonight by repeating the motto that you should be careful what you wish for, because it might just come true. I also told a story of a man who thought he wanted justice, but actually ended up paying the price when justice arrived. And chapter 3, verse 1 is where a similar story starts to unfold. In verse 1, the scene changes. God effectively says, you want justice, or you're going to get justice. But don't be complacent about what justice means. The God whom the people saw as distant, as uncaring, is going to come to his people, to his temple, and make himself known in an unmistakable way. Let's read verse 1 again. I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant, whom you desire, will come, says the Lord Almighty. The Lord will come to his temple and he will come suddenly. Now at the time that Malachi was written, the temple at Jerusalem, uh, the first one, had been destroyed. A second one had been built in its place. 
515 BC. But it did not house the Ark of the Covenant because that had been lost in the exile to Babylon. And neither was the temple inhabited by the Shekinah glory of God as the first one had been. So God was not at this time present with his people in this temple in a way that he had been before. But God says that it would not remain that way forever. And the New Testament very helpfully explains to us what's going on in verse 1. You don't need to turn to it now, but in both Matthew 11 and Luke 7, the messenger that prepares the way for the Lord is clearly identified as John the Baptist, which of course means that the Lord is Jesus himself, God in human flesh. So it's difficult to know if there's a specific incident in Jesus' life being referred to in verse 1, prophesied. My guess is that it isn't a reference to any particular single event in Jesus' ministry. Jesus certainly did visit the temple on many occasions and fulfilled this prophecy, but I think there's more going on here than just that. So let's look at what Malachi says that the Lord is going to do when he comes to his people. Verse 2. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. When Jesus comes, he's going to purify those who are truly his followers, his people. But as we see in verse 5, God is also going to testify against those who have not been faithful to his commands. So this coming of Jesus is going to be hugely significant. It involves separating out of people into two groups. All are tested like a precious metal in the fire, but only some are and will end up being found acceptable to God, the people mentioned in verses 3 and 4. The rest, the people of verse 5, come under God's judgment for their sin, rooted in a lack of fear of God. So did Jesus achieve all these things when he came to earth 2,000 years ago? Well, yes and no. Well, yes and no. He certainly got the process going. Those who believed in him went on to form the early church, and they seem to be among those referred to in verses 3 and 4. From Pentecost onwards, every believer is permanently indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit enables us to bring acceptable offerings to God, just as the Levites assisted with the Old Testament uh, system of offerings and sacrifices. So too we can bring acceptable offerings to God. In fact, in Romans 15, Paul talks about the Holy Spirit making previously outcast Gentiles an acceptable offering to God. But it's not just a one-off thing. The Holy Spirit continues to refine us as Christians today. And that's not necessarily a pleasant experience. In 1 Peter 1, Peter compares the trials and difficulties that Christians go through in life with a fire that refines precious metal, separating out the impurities from the pure metal. And this purification process should be ongoing in us as followers of Jesus, but it won't be complete until he returns. And so the second coming of Jesus will be where we see the other side of the coin. Jesus will be coming as a judge. Earlier in the passage, we saw how the people had put God in the dock they set themselves up as the judge. But now in verse 5, God, speaking through Malachi, takes that image and flips it around completely. In some versions it says, so I will come to put you on trial. So remember the structure we've identified in the passage. 
People think they want justice. You want justice, you're going to get justice. But it won't necessarily be pleasant for you. And I think it's a very deliberate use of that judicial imagery to totally turn the tables compared to what was happening at the start of the passage. It's also interesting that God specifically says that the people have been denying justice to the vulnerable living among them. So they're actually accusing God of the crimes that they have in fact been committing, and the irony is not lost on God. The judgment of Jesus at that future coming will be final. He won't shy away from showing up how people have rejected their creator. In fact, he'll be quick to testify against them. And his justice will also be perfect. The story I began with tonight about the man who robbed the petrol station, it's not a perfect analogy, is it? What about the second man who robbed the first robber of the money that he had taken from the petrol station? Did he return it to the petrol station? I mean, the article I read didn't say. I suspect he probably didn't. So in that situation, justice was only partially done. But when Jesus comes, there will be no loose ends and no messy compromises. So sin is serious, and God's judgment of sin is serious. It's not something to be taken lightly, and there's no room for complacency. But it's important to remember that when justice is administered perfectly, it is a very good thing. Well, I appreciate that so far, much of what we've covered has been pretty heavy stuff. Where's the good news in this passage? Well, it's that good news that I want to focus on as I draw towards a close. Jesus' first coming has achieved a radical change. Previously, the offerings that the people have brought to God were unacceptable. We know from elsewhere in the Bible that even a perfect unblemished lamb or bull was never ultimately going to pay the price and the massive penalty for human sin. But Jesus, fully God and fully man, did pay that price through his death and resurrection. By dealing with the sin that separates man from God, he restores our relationship with him. And now we can bring offerings in righteousness, as we read in verses 3 and 4. And of course, that is incredibly good news. Not only are we saved from God's judgment, but the living sacrifice that we make daily as we serve God is not a waste of time. It's far from fruitless. Through Christ, we can actually please God every day. And that's why Paul describes Christians as a sweet fragrance of Christ to God in 2 Corinthians 2. So if you were wondering where the love of God, where the grace of God was in this passage, then this is it. God could have left us in our sins. He could have come only in judgment. And he would have had every right to do that. But instead he sent Jesus to give CPR to our dead religion and to bring us to life. I heard on the radio just this week an advert for a BBC programme in which someone said how religion was able to make people good. But that's precisely the problem, isn't it? Religion on its own, without Jesus, can never make people good. And history has proved that time and time again. Religion itself isn't the enemy. The book of James makes clear that there is such a thing as pure religion. But dead religion, without Jesus at the centre, without the empowering of the Holy Spirit, 
It's absolutely useless. It's absolutely useless. And that's why it's so crucial that Jesus breathed new life into us and turned us back to him. Before Jesus came into our lives, we could do nothing to please God. We were dead spiritually in our transgressions and sins. Of course, we aren't the finished article yet. Sin is still an all too real part of our lives. When we meet together on Sundays or midweek in home groups, it's still just a bunch of sinners together in a room. But there is at least a heart beating within us spiritually. Church can actually be something genuine, not hypocritical. Who we are and what we do as a body of believers, when acting in faith, is meaningful and it makes a difference. It's not just an empty show of ritual or just a habit that we're in. And then, when Jesus returns, he will once and for all complete the work of purifying his people. Sin will be dead. That great corrupting influence will no longer be a part of our lives. It will no longer be something we battle with. And therefore our relationships with God and with each other will be perfect. Well, hallelujah. What a saviour we have. We're going to pray now and then we're going to move into a time of sung worship. Father God, we praise you and we thank you that you're a God of both justice and salvation. We know that we can never come before you in our, our natural sinful state. We can never be acceptable to you. We are sorry for ways in which we have denied your justice through our rebellion against you. But we thank you that when we were dead in our transgressions and sins, Jesus came and breathed new life into us. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his death and resurrection. And we ask that you would strengthen us to serve you, not out of hypocrisy, but out of genuine faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.